0: The reason for the judgment is pride and arrogance against God and refusal to submit to him. The rejection of the one true God is the cause of judgment. And that is still very applicable today. Welcome to Uncaged Bible Study. We hope our name gives it away as we are looking to unleash God's word in its entirety from beginning to end and unlock the power within the pages of scripture. We aim to restore the authority of God's word in a world that has lost its understanding of doctrinal truths, as well as shed a light on how from the first page to the last page, the Bible is pointing us towards Messiah, our savior, Jesus. So we hope you enjoy the Bible study today. And if you did, follow us or share the podcast to help us spread the word around the globe. And if you leave us a five-star review, that's a great way to let us know that you say amen and are impacted by what you've heard. So thank you for joining us on this journey. And in the words of Charles Spurgeon, the Bible is like a caged lion. It does not need to be defended. It simply needs to be let out of its cage. Let's unlock the cage together. Isaiah chapters 21 through 23, we're sort of finishing up this 11-12 chapter section of um, God proclaiming judgments on the foreign nations that surround Israel. And so that's really what these three chapters are going to be about. Uh, It's starting off, what you'll notice is they're not really chronological. Isaiah is looking into the future, um, and he's proclaiming the judgment of nations in the future, um, but they don't happen necessarily in chronological order. So, for instance, in chapter 21, we're talking about the fall of, of Babylon and the kingdom of Babylon. Uh, but shortly after that, we're talking about the fall of the, of the Persian Empire uh, and, then the, and then the Arabian Peninsula and their fall, uh, just in chapter 21. And the Arabian Peninsula falls to the Assyrian army, who was defeated by the, Babylons, by the Babylonians. So uh, you see that chronologically throughout history. It's a little bit out of order, but it's just visions that Isaiah is getting, uh, and he's writing them down uh, as future prophecy, uh, which in this at this point it is. There are some, uh, a little bit of the law of double reference where we see fulfillment in the short term and then ultimate fulfillment that will come uh, in the future at Christ's return, and we'll split those things up, uh, and we'll try to keep you, in order as much as we can as we go through this. But let's open up uh, chapter 21. The burden against the wilderness of the sea. This is really talking about the marshlands in southern Babylon. Um, Just this kind of big empty area, marshy area, but it's swampy, so it's the wilderness of the sea. It says, As whirlwinds in the south pass through, so it comes from the desert, from a terrible land. A distressing vision is declared to me. So this area of Babylon, Babylon, uh, there's going to be some distressing vision, some judgment that's coming on them that brings Isaiah, It wakes him up a little bit. He says, The treacherous dealer deals treacherously, and the plunderer plunders. Go up, O Elam, besiege, O media. All its sighing I have made to cease. And so he's talking about Babylon, and he points out an area of Babylon in particular, and he sees this distressing vision, which is this conquering army that's coming, and then he names O Elam and O Media, which were parts of the Persian Empire's army, because it was the Medo-Persian Empire. The Medes were part of the Medo-Persian Empire. Uh, and these two armies were factions of the Persian invading force. so He is calling out by name. The Persian Empire will take over the Babylonians. Verse 3, Therefore my loins are filled with pain. Pangs have taken hold of me like the pain of a woman in labor. I was distressed when I heard it. I was dismayed when I saw it. My heart wavered. Fearfulness frightened me. Uh, The night for which I longed, he turned into fear for me. Prepare the table, set a watchman in the tower, eat and drink. Arise, you princes, anoint the shield. So he's talking about this very, it's going to be a severe judgment or a severe takeover, uh, which is that reference to the pangs of a woman in labor. Uh, But he is specifically saying there's going to be an army invasion. So he says, set a watchman in the tower, meaning go set a guard to watch for this invasion because it's coming. And so Isaiah sets a watchman in the tower, or uh, this may also be a reference to a spiritual watchman, like an angel to go witness this coming in. Now this is referenced, if that's true, that's a reference to some prophecy in Daniel as well, which talks about the prince of Persia coming in to take over the Babylonians, where it's really talking about a spiritual prince, not the uh, ruler of Persia but mentioning that the spiritual uh, strongholds of the nations are going to take over uh, Babylon in this part and God is handing this region over to this new, this new invasion invading force. So he says, "Arise, you princes, anoint the shield for thus says the Lord, go set a watchman, let him declare what he sees. And he saw a chariot with a pair of horsemen, a chariot of donkeys, and a chariot of camels. Then, he cried, A lion, my lord, I stand I con- I continually uh, I stand continually on the watchtower in the daytime, I have set my post every night, and look, here comes a chariot of men with a pair of horsemen. Then he answered, Babylon is fallen, is fallen, and all the carved images of her gods he has broken to the ground. Oh my threshing in the grain of my floor. That which I have heard from the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, I have declared to you. So this is a certainty. He says it even in the past tense. I have declared this is going to happen. And he says Babylon has fallen. Now this is a true statement. You know, we can read about the fall of Babylon in Daniel. We actually witnessed Daniel in the king's chambers, in Belshazzar's chambers, um, as Persia takes over Babylon in a single night. But this is also a future reference to Christ's return. And so Babylon is fallen, is fallen, is actually quoted in the book of Revelation in chapter 18. Uh, In chapter 18, verse 2, it says in the book of Revelation, And he cried mightily with a loud voice, saying, Babylon the great is fallen, is fallen, and has become a dwelling place of demons, a prison for every foul spirit, And a cage for every unclean and hated bird. Meaning, Babylon itself is often used as the city that's representative of the rule of man. And the coming together of man in the end times is referenced to as Babylon, whether that is physically in the same place as the kingdom of Babylon or is just a metaphorical reference to this conglomerate of nations that come together, uh, much like Nimrod. After uh, the flood in the Tower of Babel, whatever this is, this is quoted in in Revelation chapter eighteen, because ultimately man's rule will be put to end, and the sin of man will come to a crashing end at Christ's return, and the city of man will be destroyed as Jesus brings Jerusalem up and reigns from Jerusalem in the millennial kingdom. So that's a future fulfillment, but this is also a physical fulfillment that has already happened um, when Babylon was defeated by the Persians. You can read about that in the book of Daniel, and we will soon. Verse 11, the burden against Dumah, which is just another name for Edom, and the Edomites are descendants of Esau. Esau is Jacob's brother, uh, and he was also called Edom because he was red and hairy. So, Esau for one, Edom for the other. And he calls to me out of Seir, Watchman, wood of the night. Watchman, wood of the night, the watchman said. The morning comes and also the night. If you will inquire, inquire, return, come back. In waiting for, uh, they're, they're waiting for an attack, basically. So, this is a very short prediction for Edom and for the Edomites. But what it's really talking about is the Assyrian control of Edom is at some point going to fall away. And so that's this idea of the morning comes. Assyria and the oppression of the Assyrians has been lifted off of the Edomites, but also the night because that, that uh, time frame between Assyrian rule and Babylonian rule is very short. So they experience a very short vacation between tyrants, between the Assyrians and the Babylonians. So the morning comes and also the night. Uh, so if you will inquire, inquire, return, come back. Now, the burden against Arabia, which is exactly where you probably think it is, the Arabian Peninsula. In the forest of Arabia you will lodge, O oh, you traveling companies of, Dedan, of Dedanites. O oh, inhabitants of the land of Timah, bring water to him who is thirsty. With their bread, and they met him who fled. For they fled from the swords, from the drawn sword, from the bent bow, and from the distress of war. So, what this is talking about is the Assyrians are coming to invade the Arabian Peninsula, and the Arabian armies are retreating and trying to get away from the Assyrians. For thus the Lord has said to me, within a year, according to the year of a hired man, all the glory of Kedar will fall. And the remainder of the number of archers, the mighty men of the people of Kidar, will be diminished. For the Lord God of Israel has spoken it. And so, while they're retreating and trying to escape the onslaught of the Assyrian army that's headed from the north to the south, and they're retreating south, uh, it will catch up with them within a year, and they will be defeated by the Assyrians. That's the judgment on the Arabian Peninsula. Chapter twenty-two. The burden against the valley of vision, really meaning Jerusalem, often because Jerusalem is where a lot of the prophets were from and where the visions that God gave were from. So the valley of vision. What ails you now that you have all gone up to the housetops, you who are full of noise? A tumultuous city, a joyous city, your slain men are not slain with the sword, nor dead in battle. Now what Isaiah is saying is, The Assyrians who conquered the northern kingdom of Israel and have been on a march towards the surrounding regions have also marched towards Jerusalem, and they almost got to a point where they were able to take over the southern kingdom of Judah where Isaiah is prophesying, but God held them back. And the people, rather than learning their lesson from God protecting them at the last minute, and saving them from the onslaught of the Assyrians, they have—they're enjoying frivolity, and they're this joyous city who didn't learn their lesson. They didn't repent. They didn't turn back to God, and so he's saying, uh, he doesn't really like their attitude. In verse three: All your rulers have fled together. They are captured by the archers. All who are bound, all who are found in, you are bound together. They have fled from afar. Therefore, I look away from me, I weep bitterly. Do not labor to comfort me because of the plundering of the the daughter of my people. And so you see this phrase at the end of verse 2 that says, your slain men are not slain with the sword. And then this description of they're captured by the archers, and they're bound together, and they fled from afar. So what's going on is they never repented from their near judgment from the Assyrians. And they're still living frivolously and still worshiping false gods and doing things they shouldn't do. And Isaiah is disappointed in that. And he's saying that future judgment is coming. And what's going to happen is you're going to fall to Babylon. The Babylonians are going to rise up. And they're going to do what the Assyrians did not do. And they're going to conquer Jerusalem. And he says it in a, in a pretty discouraging and humbling and humiliating way in that the the army of Jerusalem won't even be killed by the sword. They'll be captured by the archers because what happens is Nebuchadnezzar surrounds the city and sieges the city and doesn't allow supplies to go in. So it's like a military blockade. So whatever supplies they have in Jerusalem get dried up and they can't bring anything in from the outside. And so people actually start dying of hunger and starvation and malnutrition and lack, you know lack of sleep, and, and they just fall apart from their health. And so they're just captured by the archer's way in the back. Uh, they're not killed by the sword. They're just defeated in humiliating fashion, and they just kind of crumble uh, it from their will from being uh, sieged in, in this blockade lasting so long. So he says, therefore, I said, look away from me. I weep bitterly. Do not labor to comfort me because of the plundering of the daughter of my people. For it is a day of trouble and treading down and perplexity. By the Lord God of hosts in the valley of vision, breaking down the walls and crying to the mountain. Elam bore the quiver with chariots of men and horsemen and Kir uncovered the shield. It shall come to pass that your choicest valleys shall be full of chariots and horsemen shall set themselves in array at the gate. He removed the protection of Judah. You looked in that day to the armor of the house of the forest. You also saw the damage to the city of David, that it was great. And you gathered together waters of the lower pool. You numbered the houses of Jerusalem and the houses you broke down to fortify the wall. You made a reservoir between the two walls for the water of the old pool, but you did not look to its maker, nor did you have any respect for him who fashioned it long ago. And what God is telling the people in this judgment is, you're going to be sieged. There's going to be a blockade. You're not going to be able to get any uh, supplies in. It's going to be filled with chariots and horsemen. And you're going to do everything in your power to hold them off. You're going to break down the houses to reinforce the walls. You're going to try to siphon in water from the pool of Siloam. You're going to do everything you can to give yourself the resources to stave off this attack from the Babylonians, but the one thing you won't do is look to the Maker. You have all of this pride and faith in yourself, which is your downfall, because if you turned your hearts to God, the judgment wouldn't come. But you don't. You turn your hearts to yourself and your pride, and everything you do is in vain. And so they do everything but repent and look to God. Verse 12, In that day, the Lord God of hosts called for the weeping, calls for weeping and for mourning, for baldness and for girding with sackcloth. But instead, joy and gladness, slaying oxen and killing sheep, eating meat and drinking wine. Let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. So even in this moment, when they're sieged, they've done everything they can, the writing is on the wall. They can't possibly win. They know they're going out, that the Babylonians are going to win at their last stand. Instead of repenting and turning to God like they should, like that day God calls for weeping and mourning and sackcloth and being grieved, instead they say, Drink wine, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. They just choose to be, to live in revelry even as judgment is crumbling all around them and destroying their resources and they starving. Then it was revealed in my hearing by the Lord of hosts, surely for this iniquity, there will be atonement for you, even to your death, says the Lord God of hosts. So even though judgment is coming, so is redemption. Verse 15, thus says the Lord God of hosts, go proceed to this steward, to Shebna, who is over the house. So this is a servant of the king, Shebna. What have you done here and whom have you here that you have hewn a sepulcher here as he who hews himself a sepulcher, a sepulcher on high who carves a tomb for himself in a rock? Indeed, the Lord will throw you away violently, O mighty man, and he will surely Sees you. So this servant of the king, advisor of the king, uh, sees kind of where things are going. And instead of worrying about the people or turning his heart to God, he focuses on himself. And he endures whatever comfort he can. And he plans for his own future and builds himself kind of a glorious tomb to lay rest because he realized that the end is coming. Um, and he just submits to it. But God says, no. I'm removing you. You don't get to have what you've made for yourself. Uh, You haven't served me. You haven't served the king. uh, You're done. So indeed the Lord will throw you away violently, O mighty man, and will surely seize you. He will surely turn violently and toss you like a ball into a large country. There you shall die, and there your glorious chariots shall be shame on your master's house." So I will drive you out of your office, and from your position, he will pull you down. He says you're losing your job, and God is going to toss you away like throwing a piece of paper into the trash bin. And then he's going to replace you. Then it shall be in that day that I will call my servant Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah. I will clothe him with your robe and strengthen him with your belt. I will commit your responsibility into his hand. He shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. The key of the house of David I will lay on his shoulder. So he shall open and no one shall shut. And he shall shut and no one shall open. Now this, in particular, Eliakim becomes the next servant to the king. um, But he's trustworthy and faithful and he holds the key to access to David access to the kingdom, or not to David, but to the king. The son of David is the point. So he holds access to the king and to the kingdom. He allows who comes in and who comes out. This is referenced again by Jesus in the book of Revelation, as he uh, tells John to write a letter, uh, the seventh letter to to the sixth church, The sixth letter to the sixth church of Philadelphia. So in verse 2 of Revelation uh, 3, I'm sorry, verse 7 of Revelation 3, he says, And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, write, These things says he who is holy, he who is true. He who has the key of David, he who opens and no one shuts and shuts and no one opens. So Jesus has taken this mantle on himself because Jesus is the one who holds the keys to the kingdom. He's the king himself, but he also is the one who holds who comes into the millennial kingdom, who comes into the kingdom that Jesus will reign from in Jerusalem when he returns. He's the one who chooses. He is the judge. So he has the power that Eliakim was given for the millennial kingdom. And so uh, there's a bit of a double reference there. I will fasten him as a peg in a secure place, and he will become a glorious throne to his father's house. They will hang on him all glory of his father's house, the offspring and the posterity, all vessels of small quantity from the cups to all the pitchers. In that day, says the Lord of hosts, the peg that is fastened in the secure place will be removed and cut down and fall, and the burden that was on it, it will be cut off, for the Lord has spoken. So while Eliakim was a faithful servant, he gained prosperity that he leaves to his children, but his children are not as worthy as him, and God cuts off his inheritance because his children are not as good of servants to God as he was, and so that ability and that position and that wealth and those gifts were cut off, um, which we see where they go. Jesus takes hold of them for the millennial kingdom. Chapter 23, the burden against Tyre. Now, Tyre is a major city in, of the Phoenicians. They kind of control the Mediterranean. They're a naval power at this time. And Tyre is a port city where a lot of the marketplace happens. It's sort of a meeting ground for the nations um, where the marketplace happens. And so there's a burden against Tyre because, uh, well, Tyre is a pagan nation. They worship false gods. And uh, if you don't know this, Jezebel was from there. Now, Jezebel, if you remember from the book of of books of the Kings. Jezebel was Ahab's wife. So probably the worst king in the northern kingdom of, of, uh, of Israel. His wife was worse than him, and they had a couple of showdowns with Elijah the prophet. And she's the worst. She's from Tyre. And so she brought their type of worship into the northern kingdom of Israel. Um, and so there's particular judgment on the city of Tyre. It says, "Wail you ships of Tarshish, for it is laid waste. So that there is no house, no harbor from the land of Cyprus, it is revealed to them. Be still, you inhabitants of the coastland, you merchants of Sidon, whom the whom those who cross the sea have filled, and on great waters the grain of Shehor. So, uh, Tyre and Sidon, both Phoenician cities, Tyre is the main, uh, you know, recipient of this judgment that's coming, but. Sidon is mentioned, uh, mentioning that they're a seafaring people thus far. The harvest of the river is her revenue, and she is a marketplace for the nations. So this is pointing out basically that Tyre is wealthy. They're a rich place because it's become a marketplace. It's become a meeting place for the nations to trade um, as a port city. And it's become wealthy off of this and it says be ashamed o sidon for the sea has spoken the strength of the sea is saying i do not labor nor bring forth children neither do i rear young men nor bring up virgins so the point of that is really saying yes you're wealthy because you're a port city and you're a meeting place for the nations to do trade but you don't actually bring any value to the world you're not doing any of the work yourself. You're just getting rich off of being a place where the world meets. Uh, and what you have exported to the world is idolatry. So, not good. When the report reaches Egypt, they also will be in agony at the report of Tyre. Cross over to Tarshish, whale, well, you inhabitants of the coastland. Is this your joyous city whose antiquity is from ancient days? Whose feet carried her far off to dwell, who has taken this counsel against Tyre, the crowning city, whose merchants are princes, whose traders are honorable of the earth. The Lord of hosts has purposed it to bring, uh, to dishonor the pride of all glory, to bring into contempt all the honorable of the earth. So God is bringing down judgment on on them because they don't bring anything to the world. The only thing they export is idolatry. Yet, because of their great wealth being a port city, they are very prideful and arrogant, and they boast against God. So overflow through your land like the river, O daughter of Tarshish, there is no more strength. He stretched out his hand over the sea. He shook the kingdoms. The Lord has given a commandment against Canaan to destroy its strongholds. And he said, you will rejoice no more. O you oppressed virgin daughter of Sidon. Arise, cross over to Cyprus. There also you will have no rest. Behold, the land of the Chaldeans, which is Babylon. This people, which was not, Assyria founded it for wild beasts of the desert. They set up its towers, they raised up its palaces, and brought it to ruin. Whale, you ships of Tarshish, for your strength is laid waste. This is very interesting stuff. So this judgment is coming. We now know why it's coming. And then he says, the land of the Chaldeans, which was not where Assyria founded it. So you're saying the judgment is going to come at the hand of the Babylonians. At this time, the Babylonians were not a powerhouse. The Assyrians were. In fact, at this point in time, the Assyrians had actually beaten the Babylonians. And it didn't look like the Babylonians would recover. And the Assyrians were kind of the big player on the block. Um, But the Assyrians... They're not going to be the ones to conquer Tyre. The Babylonians are. Uh, the interesting piece about this, and, and there's much more. When we get into a, a spot in Ezekiel, will really cover this. There's an amazing prophecy in Ezekiel about the destruction of Tyre. But we'll just talk about the first half of that today, the part that's talked about in Isaiah. <clears throat> Nebuchadnezzar sieged Tyre starting in 586 B.C which is also the same year that the destruction of Jerusalem happened. 586 BC was the same year that the destruction of the temple and the final siege on Jerusalem, where Nebuchadnezzar completely exiled the people of Judah into Babylon. That same year, he started his siege on the city of Tyre, and he sieged the city for 13 years. During that time, as he sieged the city, the people of Tyre, recognized they weren't going to win. So they actually started packing up their things and taking all of their stuff. They left the buildings, but they moved their stuff off the, off the land onto an island off the coast of the Mediterranean, and they just moved the city to a new location and lived there. And so the city, that area, was destroyed by the Babylonians, But when they marched in, they didn't really have much to take over. There's just this tiny little village off of the main portion of the city that still stands. Um, So he sort of left that alone. And that destruction happened. Now, when we get to Ezekiel, it gets really interesting. And I'll tell you a little bit about it. In the book of Ezekiel, it talks about the city of Tyre actually being the dirt being literally scraped from the ground and completely leveled. Well, when Alexander the Great marched into the city of Tyre, all that was left were the leftovers from Nebuchadnezzar's siege. So there's all the buildings, but no one inhabits them. So because they moved the city to an island off the coast near the place on the mainland, what Alexander the Great did is tear down all of the buildings and then Scrape them across the ground into the Mediterranean Sea and dump all of the rubble into the Mediterranean Sea to build a causeway to the city on the island, so that he could attack them on land because the Phoenicians were superior on the water. And so it was fulfilled completely, exactly as described in the Book of Ezekiel by Alexander the Great. Um, but we'll get, we'll talk about that more and again when we get to the Book of Ezekiel. But the destruction of Tyre unbelievable. But the siege from Babylon, from Nebuchadnezzar, starts in 586 BC, the same year that the temple is destroyed in Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar. Now, it came to pass in that day that Tyre will be forgotten 70 years, according to the days of one king. At the end of 70 years, it will happen to Tyre, as in the song of the harlot, take a harp, go about the city. You forgotten harlot, make sweet melody, sing many songs that you may be remembered, and it shall be at the end of 70 years that the Lord will deal with Tyre. She will return to her hire and commit fornication with all the kingdoms of the world on the face of the earth. Her gain and her pay will be set apart for the Lord. It will not be treasured nor laid up for her gain uh, will be for those who dwell before the Lord to eat sufficiently and for the fine clothing." And so, as you close out this chapter, what you see is the siege of Tyre began the same year as the destruction of the temple, and Tyre is going to be forgotten for 70 years, which is the same length of time that the Jews were exiled into Babylon. And so, when the Jews returned to Jerusalem under the Persian Empire, the destruction of Tyre from, and, and all of their losses are going to be recouped in the new place where they have moved out on on the island uh, and they're going to regain their power uh, as a Phoenician stronghold and a naval stronghold and and a port city on that island by the time the Jews come back to Jerusalem and then they deal with the nations negatively again and then, of course, that prophecy in Ezekiel points out the judgment that they get from God for, again, spreading idolatry to the world. Uh, so, really interesting stuff there with the city of Tyre. Now, as we move forward, we're actually going to look into more stuff about the future and the millennial kingdom over the next few chapters um, in the book of Isaiah. And we're, we've gotten kind of past this section about the judgments of the surrounding nations. But it, as you look at all of the, these chapters that we've been dealing with this, though it's maybe not as directly applicable to our lives, or things that are of note or of interest to us because they kind of have already happened, there's a couple of things to note about that. One is that, A, God's word is accurate and he predicts the future before it happens, which means we can have a whole lot of faith and trust in what God promises he still has yet to do. And secondly, the reason for the judgment is pride and arrogance against God and refusal to submit to him the rejection of the one true god is the cause of judgment and that is still very applicable today those who do not turn and repent and turn to christ and turn their hearts to god receive judgment because they reject his mercy god is merciful but if you reject his mercy you get his judgment because god Is also just. Let's pray. Father God, thank you. Uh, Thank you for these chapters. Thank you for the truth in your word and the examples of how accurate your word is and how we can hold on to it as truth because you know the end from the beginning, or you know the beginning from the end and the end from the beginning because you are the creator. And God, you give us proof of your omniscience and power. Help us to be humble enough to submit to you and accept and receive your mercy and repent. In Jesus' name, amen.